Jake Auchincloss, the newest member of the state's congressional delegation, is finishing his first year in office representing the 4th Congressional District. To say it's been an eventful and often tumultuous time to serve in the Capitol would be an understatement. Before his first month was over, Auchincloss faced an insurrection, an impeachment vote, and a presidential inauguration. Political divisions plaguing the country are also on full display in the House, where there's little agreement between the parties on much of anything. It's also not exactly been smooth sailing within the Democratic majority, where things are now at a bit of a standstill in the effort to pass President Biden's sweeping domestic policy agenda. And all of this has played out while we're still very much facing down a global pandemic. There's a lot to chew over there, and to do so, we're happy to have Congressman Jake Auchincloss here on this final podcast episode of 2021. Welcome, Jake. Thanks for having me, Michael. So uh, what surprised you about uh, Congress now that you're finishing your first year in the House? Uh, as, as I sort of went over in the introduction, it, it has not exactly been the kind of uh, uh, year that you kind of read about in civics books about, you know, how, how Congress works. It has certainly been a first year for the history books, as you indicated in the intro. My first Wednesday in office was the insurrection, and next Wednesday was the impeachment, next Wednesday was the inauguration, and then the fourth Wednesday, we got to work on the American Rescue Plan, which was the biggest piece of domestic legislation since the Great Society. A lot in that first month, and it really set the stage for the next 12 months, which have been focused on putting COVID behind us, putting a strong economy ahead of us, and trying to protect our democracy and you asked what was the greatest surprise in all this. I think I knew heading in that it was going to be a volatile year. I think I knew heading in that Trump's hold on the party was not going to slip away. But I still have been surprised by how many Republicans were willing to vote to decertify the election results. That, to me, standing in the House chamber on January 6th, literally on top of broken glass and watching Republicans stand up and object to Arizona and Pennsylvania is a moment that's just never going to leave me for its demonstration of political cowardice and for reflecting the exact opposite of the ideal of country before self. What has that meant for your, your first year in office? Um, in terms of, you know, just getting to know colleagues, trying to establish working relationships when you've got at least some, uh, some uh, decent-sized chunk of the, of the other party uh, that sort of staked out that position. I know you've even said you, you've kind of vowed to not really work with members who, who would not certify the results of a Democratic election. Right. I always try to center myself on two core jobs that I have in Washington. One is to represent the values of my constituents, and two is to advance their priorities. And I think for every member of Congress in history, there's always a healthy tension between those two things, because representing value sometimes can mean taking hard positions, hardline positions. Advancing priorities means working with groups that don't agree with you, that may not share some of your values, actually, to get things done, to build a coalition, to pass important legislation. So there's always been a tension between representing values and advancing priorities. And what the 117th Congress 
I think has has experienced is just that that tension is greater than ever and has gotten to an unhealthy level because I feel very strongly that to represent the values of my constituents here in Massachusetts, the cradle of the revolution, I just tend, I'm not going to be working with members of Congress who voted to decertify the election results from a free and fair election who would not support the peaceful transfer of power. At the same time, with razor thin majorities in the House and no majority in the Senate, you've got to work across the aisle to get most things done. And so that tension is, is, quite, is, is quite profound. Um, and the best way that I can navigate it is just to set a very clear rule. If you voted against the January, uh, excuse me, if you voted against the election results on January 6th, we're not co-sponsoring legislation with you. We're not leading letters with you. Uh, we just, we're not going to uh, be advancing priorities with you. If you voted the right way on January 6th, even if we may disagree on a number of other things, we will roll up our sleeves in good faith and, and try to find solutions. And that's kind of the dividing line I've drawn. And that helps me do both of those jobs, I think, fully and effectively. And just sort of refresh my memory and that of our listeners. So of the, uh, you know, sort of what is it, 200 and some Republicans, uh, how does that sort of shake out? How many of them did not, uh, you know, vote to certify the election? Roughly half. It's, uh, it's roughly 50-50 of the GOP conference. Right. And so speaking of, you know, the razor thin margins, um, you know, as we said, you know, there's certainly a lot of partisanship uh, in in the Congress, but even within the Democratic majority, there's some pretty, you know, sharp divisions that have emerged. And I guess most prominently, we're talking about uh, uh, the president's domestic policy agenda and the Build Back uh, Better legislation, which uh, uh, is now sort of uh, either dead or I know you've referred to it as stalled uh, after Senator Manchin's declaration that he wouldn't support it. Um, you've been a, a big backer of the president. I know you've you've said in a number of appearances that that uh, that that uh, that legislation will pass at some point. Are you still feeling that way now? I'm confident that a number of the priorities embedded in Build Back Better will pass. And just for our listeners sake, because I think too much of the conversation about Build Back Better has been about the process, the price tag, it's just helpful to remind ourselves what's in it, right? So it's really got three key pillars. One is we're trying to lower healthcare costs, trying to lower out-of-pocket costs of prescription drugs, the cost of uh, health insurance, the cost of hearing aids for senior citizens, the cost of Medicaid for low-income Americans, especially long-term care. So one big bucket is we're trying to lower healthcare costs, which have been inflating rapidly over the last several decades. Number two, we want to fully create Social Security for kids. President Roosevelt and the New Deal was revolutionary here in the United States in asserting that the federal government had a role in creating a basic standard of living for all Americans. It was focused, though, mostly on adults through unemployment insurance and through senior citizens with Social Security. Over the last couple of decades, starting with the Children's Health Insurance Program, we've started to create a Social Security for kids, meaning a, a basic standard of living that we demand for uh, for young Americans. And this legislation would materially advance that imperative by universal pre-K for all three and four-year-olds, through a more affordable childcare for their parents, and probably most impactfully through the fully refundable child tax credit, which puts cash directly in the pockets of mom and dads so that they can uh, make sure their kids have nutritious meals and, and, and uh, high quality care. 
So that's number two, social security for kids. And then number three is bold climate action. And on this front, uh, you know, candidly, we've been very frustrated by the, some of the, the special interests that have pushed back on programs to make state utilities transition to clean electricity and to really decarbonize our economy, ideally even put in a carbon tax. So uh, there have been frustrations on that last front, most particularly. But even so, there are significant advancements, but by far the most important advancements in the history of the country in terms of getting to a clean energy economy and build back better. That's a lot. And with a razor-thin majority and with zero help from Republicans, who before they even saw the, legis- the legislation asserted they were not going to support it, uh, of course we've had to wrangle. And I, I, this may be sort of a contrarian thing to say, but I, I really don't kind of apologize for that. That's what Congress is about. Of course we're going to be debating policy. And six months in the scheme of things is really not that long to be debating the policy, especially policy that can materially impact people's lives for 10 years. That deserves a full and fair hearing that deserves a lot of dialogue, both in the civil society as well as in in the halls of power. So I I think that's been a healthy process. Obviously, it can at times be frustrating. Obviously, at times, people's tempers boil over. But this is Washington, D.C. This is varsity. You got to come to play and and try to get policy passed. Uh, Build Back Better in its current form, as you said. Senator Manchin has made clear that he's not going to vote for it in its current form. He's said that really since July in various iterations. But there are policies in there that I'm absolutely confident can pass. The priority for me would be the the child tax credit, would be to lower taxes for working families and to pay for it with a carbon tax, which would be a really material advance in our fight against climate change. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, we should say also that, you know, there's been sort of two big pieces of legislation the president uh, has put forward, domestic legislation and the and the infrastructure bill uh, did pass, and um, you 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 know you've been a big backer of the president and his agenda, um, but there's there's been some criticism that um, even you know the good stuff that he's gotten done, like the infrastructure bill, has kind of suffered or been lost on 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 a lot of Americans, um, frankly, because of what people have said has just been poor messaging coming out of the White House. Could they be doing a better job at making sure people know what has actually been accomplished already? I think voters respond to what they can see and feel, rightfully so. Uh, talk is cheap. Action is what matters. And if you look at the last 60 years of politics, what you see is that people tend to judge Washington, D.C. by their post-tax discretionary income, basically by their purchasing power that they feel that they have in this economy. And I think what we're seeing right now is that voters are saying, I want to feel like we have a strong economy ahead of us. And the challenge is, while we've passed a superb infrastructure bill that's going to expand access to high-speed internet and fix roads and bridges and, and guarantee clean water for every kid in this country and knit together our electrical grid to make it more resilient and to make energy cheaper... These are all things that have to go through the states and cities and have to go get contracted and have to get built. These are things that are going to roll out over the next couple of years. Whereas right now, here in December, what Americans are feeling is inflation. They're feeling that groceries have gotten more expensive and that feeling that their car has gotten more expensive. 
So it's not surprising that uh, despite creating 6 million jobs in the first year of his administration, uh, the economy is, is, not a, is not a fully winning message yet. Just talk a little bit about, I don't know, I'm curious about just how, uh, you know, you've kind of acclimated and, and sort of made your way there in, in D.C. Um, you know, you, you follow two pretty prominent Democrats um, that, that, you know, kind of uh, eventually cut uh, national profiles. Barney Frank, who held the seat for more than 20 years, and then Joe Kennedy, who was there for six. Um, I'm just wondering, have you have you have you talked to either of them or both of them, uh, you know, kind of as you're as you've made your way along this during this first year? Bob Drinan, too, who Although, some of our listeners will remember was a, a, a priest uh, also from Newton, who was really a, a moral force in opposing the Vietnam War. This district is a highly civically engaged district. It's got tremendous uh, store of talent and intelligence and work ethic. And you're right, it is accustomed to having representatives with a national profile. I'm grateful both to Barney Frank and Joe Kennedy and that they've been generous to me with their advice and their time over these last year. I call them both. Mm-hmm. And what do they what do they tell you about, you know, the kind of crazy craziness in Washington and how to kind of cut through the the muck or the fog or however you want to term it? Well, you know, respecting the confidentiality of our conversations, I would say the general the, the general agreement from them and, and also really from a lot of my colleagues who are still in the House who have been around for a while is that the polarization has gotten worse. The atmosphere has degraded the ability to do thoughtful committee work where people can, to a certain extent, take off their jerseys and just engage on the issues. All of that's gotten more challenging. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, speaking of sort of, uh, you know, colleagues that you are serving with, I, I, I wonder also, could you talk a little about the dynamics within our state delegation? Um, you know, we, we often don't hear much about about those those relationships and um who have you, you know, have you gotten to know best or is there, you know, are some of the, have some of the members been, been, you know, particularly helpful or sort of you look to as kind of mentors as you've, as you've uh, gotten acclimated there? It's a terrific delegation. I oftentimes say that I've joined a lineup of cleanup hitters. We've got Catherine Clark, my neighbor, who is the assistant speaker and is, Really, you know, in all in in every room where leadership is is discussing key issues, Uh, Ayanna Presley, who obviously has has built a national profile, um, even in her freshman year and into her sophomore year, got the chair of rules with Jim McGovern, the chair of Ways and Means, Richie Neal, um, just a lot of really, really, really capable, well-respected legislators in the House on important committees who are always prepared, are always well-versed in the issues. Uh, their colleagues listen and respect them. So what it's done for me is, one, as you say, it's, it's an inbuilt set of eight people that I can ask for their opinions on things, whether national issues or also obviously issues that affect Massachusetts. And the other thing that it's done is it takes a little bit of the pressure off me as a freshman in having to 100% fully deliver for the state when we're doing national policy. Sometimes what I see with other members, junior ones especially, who come from states where maybe they're the only Democrat in that state delegation or 
where it's just a small state and they're the one who has to do it is, is that for something like the bipartisan infrastructure bill or for the American Rescue Plan, the whole weight of the state's needs are on them. Coming from Massachusetts, like when you've got <laughs> you got Richie Neal or Jim McGovern or Catherine Clark in the delegation, like Massachusetts is doing super well. And so it allows me to really specialize and focus and make sure I'm representing the district and not having to um, kind of constantly, constantly having to focus on every single Massachusetts issue for these big policy items. Mm-hmm. And is, is there one of those uh, colleagues that you've kind of come to, you know, be kind of most frequently in touch with and in sort of checking in on things? Yeah, it's really context dependent. So I'm on I'm on the transportation infrastructure committee with Seth Moulton and Steve Lynch. So we're talking oftentimes about those issues, about uh, you know rail or or buses or the Cape Cod bridges, East West Rail. Um, Richie Neal is the dean of the delegation, so he's oftentimes coordinating statewide issues with us. And I talk to Richie frequently about, especially about kind of internal maneuvering for issues. He's just so he's so wise on that. Um, Jim McGovern, I can check in with about, because he's the chair of rules, he's like the ground truth of what's actually going on, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's always so much chatter in Washington, D.C. about this intent or that person or whatever. The rules committee is what actually literally sets the agenda formally. And so Jim McGovern, by, by his job description, has to know what's actually going on. <laughs> so right. he's, he's a good person to check in there. And so it's yeah, Lori Trahan is become a leader on clean energy issues. She's on energy and commerce. She and I talk about um, clean energy issues a lot. So it's just a tremendous set of people to be able to talk to. Um, uh, Catherine Clark has been a, a, a mentor in a lot of different ways. There's few people in the whole Democratic caucus, maybe nobody, who I think is more broadly and universally just kind of liked than Catherine Clark. I mean, she's people really just um, trust and and enjoy spending time with her, and so she's a good person to talk to about mm-hmm. getting to does, know other members of the does, of the does, broader caucus. Does she seem like a future speaker to you? I mean, she certainly has the ability to deliver the member services and to be the the patient listener that, that a speaker has to be. Uh, she's she certainly has all the tools. I I. I'll let her speak to her intentions and, and navigate that process, but she's a highly, highly capable member. Mm-hmm. And um, just talk a little bit more about um, the kind of role you've tried to carve out or the profile, I guess, in terms of addressing issues that, uh, that, that are being faced even nationally. I know you, you've been a Democrat who's been, you know, willing to go on Fox News uh, multiple times uh, over this last year and talk there. What's your thinking in sort of going uh, going into the into the into the lion's den or the enemy's uh, camp to talk with with the uh, with the hosts there and with the with the audience that they draw? I think Pete Buttigieg modeled this effectively during his campaign for president. Uh, we need to talk to each other as a country. And if we cast aspersions on the motives and the character of anybody who disagrees with us on any issue, we are going to continue into this vortex of mutual distrust and polarization and acrimony. 
what people I think want from their elected officials, especially at the national level, is to find and speak to our common values and to point to common ground. Can that be uh, a ubiquitous approach? Of course not. I just, at the beginning of this conversation, outlined that people who vote against the election results in Congress are not people that I'm finding common ground with uh, going forward. But once you make those sharp red line distinctions, it actually liberates you then to find common ground with everybody else. And that's still, by the way, a majority of the American people. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I really try to approach my job as a common sense Democrat who uh, is a strong, strong champion for bold action on climate solutions, who wants to make our economy uh, more fair for everybody, regardless of how they were born, and who is also a committed capitalist um, who is willing to work with the nonprofit sector, the business sector on solutions, because that's, that's my background. I was in the military. I was in business. I was in local government. I have never seen a big, complicated problem that can be solved um, with, with one sector. You need to have people rowing together. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, have you gotten sort of reaction or do you talk to colleagues about, you know, g- going on Fox of people either kind of given, you know, Democrats giving you a hard time about it or said good for you or I'm sure Twitter has given me a hard time. <laughs> I, I don't know. I haven't looked on Twitter, but yeah. I, my colleagues have been very supportive. I, I've gone on Fox as well as NBC on Afghanistan repeatedly to defend and explain the president's position on that issue. I've written an op-ed and gone on Fox about inflation and put forward four solutions and approaches that could be bipartisan and kind of opened the door to conversation with with Republicans who wanted to try to solve inflation. Um, and I, I always get very positive feedback. You, you, don't, you don't win a national majority talking with the people who already agree with you. Sort of a certain uh, almost resignation you hear uh, about the likelihood of Democrats losing the majority in the House next time. I mean, certainly there's a long history of, uh, you know, pattern of what happens in the midterm election to the party of of the president and in power and then, you know, add inflation and other factors uh, that are at play now. Um, What do you how do you sort of view the party's prospects to 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 keep the House? There's no question that the historical pattern is pessimistic. The president's party will lose seats in the midterms. Right. A year is a long time in politics. A lot can change. What I am, and I've said this since before I took office, you've got to drown out the day in, day out noise of cable TV and social media and, and Washington Beltway gossip and anchor ourselves in the fact that voters, when they walk into the ballot box in November, I really think are going to be focused on two things. Is COVID mostly behind us and is a strong economy ahead of us? If, if we can make the case that, that, that those two things are trending in the right direction, I absolutely think Democrats have a shot at retaining our majority. 
But that means that we need to whip inflation and the Federal Reserve's commitments on raising rates and winding down tapering uh, are going to help with that. And we're already seeing positive movement with energy prices that will lower the, the cost to fuel your car or to heat your home. So the trends are moving in the right direction there. And as the supply chain gets sorted out in the first half of the year, there should be further deflationary pressures. Um, and then with COVID, you know, there's, there's no question the coronavirus is here to stay. Um, it also seems increasingly likely that it'll be an endemic source of the cold or the flu that if you're fully vaccinated, need not be life altering, need not mean serious illness. Uh, and if you're not vaccinated, uh, can be quite severe. And it, the era of individual responsibility on this front, I think, is fast approaching where uh, people are going to have to make and then live with their own decisions. Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of the, the pandemic, uh, which, as I said at the beginning, is kind of overshadows, you know, you know, or colors almost everything that's going on. What's what's your sort of take on what we can be doing about that both here? And I know you've you've spoken a little bit about the role we can play globally. Absolutely. So tackling COVID needs to remain a top two priority for the administration and for Congress. The other one is protecting our democracy through the preservation of voting rights and the expansion of the autonomy of state and local election officials. But to focus on COVID, what, is that, what does that mean in practice? Well, number one, it means we've got to vaccinate the rest of the world. We've got to get to 70% vaccination rates globally by the end of 2022. And, you know, to be blunt, we got off to too slow of a start. And I've been critical of the administration on that. Mm -hmm. I think that they should have done more to get vaccines overseas. And maybe even more importantly, they should have done more to help distribute those vaccines. We've got a million vaccines in uh, Nigeria that are going to expire because they didn't have the logistical capacity in the public health workforce to take vaccines on a tarmac and turn them to shots into arms. So... The United States has pledged 1.2 billion vaccines. We've got to get to a place globally where we've got at least 10 billion vaccines, I think, pledged. Uh, and then we've got to work country by country, especially in, in Africa, where the, the public health workforce is, is the weakest. Southeast Asia, uh, although there's been slow on vaccination rates, are, are, are fast catching up. We've got to work with these countries on a case-by-case -case basis to, to train, pay, uh, and flex their workforce to get these vaccines into shots into arms. That is one, just the right thing to do from a humanitarian perspective. It's two in our own self-interest because when you've only got 4% of the African continent, for example, vaccinated, and when you've got Latin America and Southeast Asia using vaccines that are not very effective, you're going to continue to have a large reservoir of hosts in which the virus can mutate. And we're going to continue to see variants like we have with Omicron. So it's the right thing to do. It's in our self-interest to prevent new variants. And then third, it's the most effective foreign policy you could imagine. We've got China extracting concessions from developing nations in exchange for vaccines that don't work. You've got the United States that could do the opposite, that could be shipping vaccines that do work. And instead of extracting con concessions, could be building out the public health workforce that will not just help eradicate the coronavirus, or at least neutralize the coronavirus, but could also be a sustainable source of, of welfare for their populations going forward, whether it's malaria or, or maternal health or, or AIDS. Um, so it just makes so much sense on a number of different fronts, and we've just been too slow on it. And I've continued to be critical and, and to be prodding the administration to move faster.
And then domestically, uh, testing, and the administration's moving on testing, which I'm, I'm happy to see. We need to have free and ubiquitous testing. Uh, and then we've, we've also just got to update, I think, our socio-political approach to this virus now that we are beginning to see the data that indicates that Omicron is both highly transmissible but also not as severe, especially mm-hmm. for the vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And, and just recognizing that if you're vaccinated, it's, you may well get this. It does not need to be life-altering or a source of severe illness. It can be the cold or the flu. And if you're not vaccinated, uh, increasingly, you're going to have to live with your choices because we cannot continue to restrict our lives, our economy, our society, our children's socio-emotional development and learning to protect those who won't protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've talked, uh, uh, you mentioned sort of uh, a minute ago, the sort of hopes and, and prospects for the Democrats if things kind of uh, turn more positively in the next year in terms of the, the election next year. I, I guess I'm presuming that you plan to be a candidate in that election. Is that a, is that a fair assumption? Yes. Okay. I don't know if this is the official or if you've officially announced uh, you're running, but you can, you can, we can break the news here on the podcast if you haven't made an official announcement. I don't know how you're, you're viewing it. You know, the, uh, the, uh, election that you won, as people may remember who followed it, it was a, it was kind of a raucous, wild free-for-all of a, of a Democratic primary, as we often see in the state when there's an open seat, uh, eight or nine candidates, one or two, I think, uh, sort of uh, uh, unofficially withdrew, but were still on the ballot, but it left, I think, at least seven of you vying. And so you won the primary with, you know, 20-some percent, 22% of the vote, I think. So, you know, not, not exactly a huge mandate. Uh, in a, an admittedly large field, how do you how have you sort of viewed the politics of getting to know the district and getting voters in the district who might have uh, had another candidate as their first choice to see you as someone who is ready to kind of take up the issues and and concerns they may have going forward? It's about showing up. I've been in all thirty four cities and towns in the last year feet on the ground. I have done dozens of roundtables or town halls uh, throughout the district, met with smaller groups of business owners or labor leaders or uh, parents or um, school activists, et cetera, to hear their issues um, and have really forged strong relationships with the local state officials and have I think we've seen that uh, a lot of them who endorsed other candidates in the primary have now endorsed me uh, in this, these last few months uh, because I've really worked hard to be a partner. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you, uh, I, do you, I know there is, I think a Republican who's announced uh, in, in the, in the, uh, in the district, but do you expect to see a democratic uh, challenger in the primary? I don't know. And, Frankly, I'm not spending a lot of time dwelling on that. I'm going to be judged by my job performance in November, and I am confident that I have done a good job and that I can communicate what we've done to voters. Mm -hmm. And you've also uh, recently uh, formed uh, a PAC to support other candidates, the Jake Auchincloss 495 Political Action Committee. Uh, what's, What's that about? Kind of a bold move for a guy in his first term in Congress to now be looking to sort of 
you know, be a be a, uh, a sort of king or queen maker in, in helping other people get get elected. As you said, 2022 is going to be a, a tough year for Democrats. And so I formed two committees, actually, to help Democrats who are in tough seats. One, the way that compliance rules work, you, you have to do two separate committees, one at the federal level to help my colleagues who are in swing districts. So people like Lauren Underwood in Illinois or uh, um you know, Raphael Warnock in Georgia, people mm-hmm. who are going to be facing tough races in 22. So I've got a federal pack that we launched with Speaker Pelosi in, in Newton a couple months ago. And I've also now have a complimentary state political action committee where I can help state candidates who are also facing tough reelection campaigns. Because, you know, it can be easy to forget here in Massachusetts, if you live in a, in a blue city or town, Actually, there's a lot of pockets of, of red and purple around here. Donald Trump got more than a million votes in Massachusetts, uh, and there right. are some of and some of my uh, fair number in your district, government. right? Yeah, yeah, well. there's a lot of my district, and and I've got some some state senators and state representatives in my district who are going to have a fight on their hands in 2022, especially if the turnouts you know is skewed or if Democrats are demoralized and Republicans come out in force. A lot of things can happen, and I want to make sure I can mm-hmm. I can help them out and do it in a way that's fully compliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we formed that separate state committee and I'll be uh, making sure I'm helping good, strong Democrats here in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And just finally, I wanted to ask you on a personal level, how the year has gone. I know you, you are, uh, you have two very young children and I, I just wonder, uh, I hate to sort of, you know, uh, think that there could be a silver lining to the pandemic in any way, but I just wonder if it has has one been that you've been working more from home than than in D.C. than otherwise would have been the case. And have you been able to be with them more? And 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 just how has that gone to have the 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 incredible demands and schedule of a of a new member of Congress, along with being a dad to two young kids? You're right that I've gotten to spend more time with them probably than, than otherwise would have been the case, which is a, an enormous blessing. And mm-hmm. Teddy is 19 months. He was born during the campaign, right at the beginning of the pandemic, actually, in April 2020. And then Grace is four months old. She was born in August. And you know, like I think like any parent can, can empathize with, they're an incredible amount of work, and they're also the, the best thing that ever happened to me. And of course scheduling and logistics going back and forth to Washington and my wife works a full-time job and it's all very complicated, but it's complicated for all of us with kids. I mean, that's nothing special to being in Congress. That's just being a parent. (laughs) And the, the most important thing is that it actually really, um, really puts my job in context, both in a big and a small way. It, It helps me understand how important some of the things that we're doing are right when I when I think about protecting the integrity of our democracy against assaults on voting and the independence of our elections and and making our climate more sustainable. These are things that are not just policy, not just imperatives, uh, not just legislation. They're also the kind of world I'm leaving for my own children. And then it also makes things, frankly, feel a lot smaller. Right, the kind of sniping and the bickering that oftentimes can characterize politics when I come home at night and I'm playing Legos with my son, like that stuff just doesn't really register. And so it, they're helpful contexts both in both ways. All right, great. Well, as we sort of head into the, toward the new year, we'll, we'll let you go, 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 uh, play some Legos with your son and, uh, 
want to thank you, Congressman Jake Auchincloss, for talking to us today on the podcast. Michael, it's a pleasure to be here. Happy New Year to you and your listeners. To you as well. And thank you all for listening to our final 2021 episode of the podcast. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. We will see you next year. Thank you.